Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Katrina Vanderven is on a mission to revolutionise the fashion industry for nearly 70% of Australian women who wear a size 14 or above. With a background in psychology, decades of lived experience as a plus-size woman and a burning desire to help women look and feel their best, Katrina is well-equipped to lead the fashion technology company Lookbook and with it a push for a more inclusive fashion industry. Since launching into the Australian market in early 2022, Lookbook has demonstrated rapid growth and has to date reached around 3 million women, experienced 60% month-on-month growth in sales, which is highly impressive, and has been featured in a range of national media. To get more details on her credentials and a career to date, Katrina comes to lead Lookbook following a decade in the government and not-for-profit sectors in which she's consistently demonstrated her ability to lead the development and execution of exciting new ideas across four continents. She also brings extensive leadership experience, having managed large 30-plus people, multidisciplinary teams, and she's very clever too. She holds an MBA from the University of Sydney Business School and a Bachelor of Psychology Honours and Master of International Relations from Griffith University. She's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and holds professional accreditations in leadership, communications, and many relations. We, in fact, first crossed paths when I interviewed Women for Election CEO Lysia Heath for episode 182. So let's dive into the politics of body size. Welcome, Katrina. Thanks for having me, Amber. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless, the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Okay, young Katrina, you obviously are a very accomplished woman. What did you want to be as a kid and kind of how did you kind of navigate your early career? Well, I think there was a little bit of a hint in that that lovely uh, bio that you just read off. I always wanted to be a clinical psychologist. So I distinctly remember from the age of about 13, I was convinced I was going to become an adolescent clinical psychologist specifically. So working with young people experiencing mental health issues. So all well and good, went to university, started studying psychology. Now, the interesting thing about psychology is 
you know, unlike nursing or social work where they get you out on practicals very early on in your degree, at psychology you actually don't get sent out into the real world at all until your honours year. Oh my goodness. So there's a long road. And that's probably why a lot of people I speak to either in this podcast or in my business life, they do have psychology degrees, but a lot of them are not practicing psychologists. Yes. And look, it's such a disservice because I know at Griffith, we had about 200 people in the undergraduate cohort, but then only about 30 places in honours. Oh, it's highly competitive as well. That's amazing. So you didn't do that. So what did you kind of do fresh out of uni? Yeah. So, well, I, I'll give you the the the, the pivot point. Oh, gosh, I love saying pivots. <laughs> the word of the decade, I think. Um, <laughs> you work in comms, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but when I went out on on honors placement um, during my masters, I really just had a bit of an epiphany that I would make a terrible clinician and look the best way I can. No, I'm, I'm very honest about this and, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased that in my early 20s when I was quite sure that my life was heading in a certain direction that I was, I was okay having that reflection. Yes. And I think, I mean, and I, I can be frank with your listeners, I think for me the, the sticking point, for want of a better term, and I think anyone who works in allied health will have felt this at some time or another, is that, I could show up to work every day and I could do my absolute best and many of my clients wouldn't get better, they would get worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was working in that very pointy end of clinical psychology in patient settings and and the reality is that you will lose some of your patients, they will pass away as well. Yeah. Um, And and that's, I know that sounds really heavy. but No, it's a fact. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, no, and I think, yes, yeah, so that obviously wasn't for you. So what did you end up doing? So fortunately I was able to parlay my honours thesis into the field of political psychology, which is a field. It's a really interesting field about uh, voter turnout, voter behaviour, and and that really set set the plan in motion for me to spend the next decade working in public and foreign policy. So interesting. I I love hearing people's backstories because I love to join the dots. But our topic today is, of course, around body size. And it feels to me like it's a bit of a female obsession. I am a woman, obviously. I have grown up, you know, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, 2000s and beyond with this kind of role model of kind of what I guess the ideal body looks like, what looks healthy. I think, you know, we're obviously in a different juncture to we were, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago, but people like, you know, Taryn Brumfit, who's a body image activist and who directed that amazing 2016 documentary about women's body loathing and, I guess, her own path of self-acceptance, she was this year's strain of the year, which is kind of a great sign. But what's your view on kind of where we're at right now? Mm. I think the first thing I'd like to say, Amber, is that, Body size and and how we think about body size and body shape and and what is the desired body size and shape is a socialized obsession. And what I mean by this is none of us live in a vacuum. Mm. And and certainly throughout most of the 20th century and, you know, just getting uh, stronger and stronger in the 20th century is the media and commercialism driving this idea of what it means to have the perfect body. I know myself being a teenager in the early 2000s, I remember the very thin, flat abs. Uh, It was all about Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan. Very skinny. Yeah, I remember. And blonde and just that really California kind of look, which I guess in Australia we related to a little bit too growing up, you know, in that beach culture. Yes, absolutely. But then we saw, you know, coming into sort of the 2010s before the Kardashians had maybe had as much surgical assistance as they've had now, we saw this real embracing of 
uh, I guess, curvier physiques. But now that seems to be winding back again. So I think that's something I'd really put out to your listeners that, you know, to think about where the trends are coming from. Mm. And what's well, the fashion industry largely, but I guess now fashion's now been replaced by this world of the influencer, whatever that looks like. Yes. That's kind yeah. of where we're at. So for me growing up and sort of I'm a bit older than you, growing up in the 90s, it was all about magazines, you know, and we didn't even know that they were being airbrushed. We kind of knew, but we didn't know. It was really, it sounds really naive now, but we just thought that's what people look like. And that was it. Absolutely, Amber. And I think the other thing we can't discount is the value of the the diet and wellness industries, which is, you know, worth billions and billions of dollars a year and that have a vested interest in not only people buying their product, but let's be honest, in people being return customers. I mean, that's the business model that we see with I'm trying not to name names, but some of those membership-based weight loss clubs, we all know the ones we're talking about. Um, And and they're huge and they're really influential, right, because they're very visually driven, like they're on social media doing all the things. Yes, absolutely. Um, One thing that I thought might be of interest, and I don't know if you're familiar with Naomi Wolf and the beauty myth. or Oh, yes, that that was very big in in like Um, I think I was in year 10 when that came out. That was like everyone at my – all girls school we all kind of read it but it was a little bit like wow like we have never thought about it that way before like you know we're just in our late teens and we're very Mm. influenced by that stuff and we just hadn't thought about it in that way a hundred percent and just to paraphrase for your listeners it's this idea that you know fixating encouraging women to fixate on the shape and size of their bodies and the pursuit of thinness isn't actually anything to do with beauty. It's certainly nothing to do with wellness or health or however we want to to couch that, but it's an obsession with obedience. And I just think that's so powerful, this idea that if you're so fixated on what you look like, being able to fully engage in the world, it, it can be really hard because so much of your mental and physical energy is taken up. Thinking about that stuff, yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah, it's a great reminder. I'd forgotten all about that book, but that was really, really big at the time and probably some really, I guess, lessons which are still relevant for all of us as we kind of navigate this body size topic. One of the things I know that when I've kind of, you know, at, when I was younger, I was a, as an athlete, as a student, and so, you know, things like BMI was very much associated with what a healthy body weight would be. So, you know, overweight and obese participants, for example, would have, you know, kind of higher BMI. There was an ideal range, I remember, for your height and, I guess, that's kind of what they based on, just your height, height and weight. It was very kind of binary in that way. That's being picked apart a bit now as not as ideal as it might have been seen by medical experts because they were definitely medical people that were kind of influencing that at the time. How can we unlearn that as a reliable tool to check ourselves? And I don't know what people use these days, but, yeah, BMI was kind of all the rage for a very long time. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's useful to go back and think about where the BMI came from. So I don't know if this is overly common knowledge. It wasn't for me until I started working in um, the plus size fashion space. And of course, because of my educational background was really interested in why we, we think the way we think and why we're conditioned in that way. But it originally came about 1830s. And it was actually, and this sounds so funny to say out loud, it was a Belgian astronomer, mathematician, and statistician who came up with it. Okay. So I didn't, see, I never knew that either. I yeah. don't think that was something we even – we didn't even ask no, where it came from. No, it was a mathematical equation okay. that was developed 
to measure basically populations. So it was never designed to be applied to individuals. It, it was sort of to say, you know, perhaps, and it was all based on Caucasian males at the time. Let's be honest. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like it was a certain kind of type of person, if you like. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it was maybe that the Spanish males compared to, you know, I have Dutch heritage to the Dutch yeah. males. And, yeah. Well, I can tell you that those those Dutch males are going to be quite a bit taller. A lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that was really the basis of it. So it's so interesting how as time has gone on, it was almost became this panacea, this, this all-encompassing idea that mm. the BMI was this perfect measure in some ways of of individual health and I mean I think what I what I'd put to your listeners is there are so many limitations because we're essentially losing a very using a very blunt instrument for a purpose for which it was never designed yeah that's a great way to put it yeah so I guess from us even us talking about it today and maybe blowing up some of the you know the reliance on it is kind of how people will start to think differently about the use of it and I guess then people go what can we replace it with how do we know that we're healthy what like what else is the other measure yeah absolutely well let me give you let me give you I, I've thought about this long and hard and I'll give you four succinct reasons why the BMI isn't great okay so firstly and if we've got any um sports people or people who are friends with professional sports people you'll know this it doesn't take into account body composition mm. so at a very basic level if you're really muscular if you're a weightlifter or if you're a rugby player you're always going to look overweight using a BMI, right? So Yeah, of course. (laughs) Secondly, it's really poor when it comes to looking at different cultures. So there are certain cultures, and and I can give examples around the Pacific Islands or in regards to African-American culture, where the measure was never designed or baselined off those cultures. And when we think about just the genetic and cultural drivers of body size and shape, those populations will always be on the higher end. It was never meant for them. Also, and this is something that I didn't know until recently, it's been arbitrarily changed, the goalposts. So back in 1998, they reduced what was constituted or defined as being overweight from I think it was a BMI of about 27 and a half. Mm-hmm. And they reduced it down to 25. So overnight, millions of people globally went from being normal weight to being told they were overweight. And I still can't find the why. Why? What's that? Why? Other than I'm like, was this diet culture? Was there some lobbying going on? I'm um, I, yeah. I'm genuinely confused by that. And, and I think the final point that I really want to to drive on this is that it doesn't tell us anything about an individual's health. Mm. So there is no single medical condition that uniquely occurs in people living in larger bodies that doesn't occur in people living in smaller bodies. Yeah, so, that, that's that's a key point, I think. That's a key point. And, of course, there are correlations. Like I, I understand that. But, I mean, that's the first thing you learn when you study psychology, that correlation and causation are two incredibly different things. Yes. And, and I think, you know, if we're going to talk about a, a specific health problem like a family predisposition of heart disease, well, surely actually looking at someone's cholesterol levels, their blood pressure, and encouraging health-promoting behaviours that are directly going to address any areas of concern and, and supplementing that with medication when needed, surely that's better advice than you need to lose weight. I mean, that, that again, it comes back to being a very, very blunt instrument when mm. our medical system otherwise is, is bought around, built around nuance and really trying to symptomatically address problems. So it's just so interesting that, that this assumption has gone unchecked for so long. 
Yeah, and I think it's an important discussion to keep having as well. So has the fashion industry had any kind of aha moment that if most women in Australia and probably other countries as well are on average of a size 14 or so, that they need to cater for the majority because that actually makes them more money and surely that's why fashion exists. Can you sort of talk a little bit about this and perhaps that leads into why your business lookbook has been so successful and I guess what are the challenges as well that you're facing? I think. There, there are a few ways to cut this amber. I think at the top end of town, so, you know, really that high-end price point aspirational fashion, to be honest, there are some exceptions to the rule, but I don't think most brands care. I think they see it as part of that that cachet and exclusivity that, you know, they, they get to pick and choose who wears their clothes. I mean, I, I guess in some ways that's their prerogative, but at the same time, as you say, it's crazy that as a consumer industry where money is on the table that you would actively choose not to make more money by selling Yeah, exactly. Selling because you know, this, this is a business. Fashion is a business yeah, and it's an industry. Business, absolutely. So, look, we've seen some very practical case studies of this in recent years. So there was increasing diversity, not only in the shape and size of models, but also cultural diversity. Yes, that's really important. That really amped up even at Sydney Fashion Week last year. Yes, I think that was that was a really kind of interesting shift because we talk about it and I think magazines, you know, have kind of dabbled in that, but it's always been like, oh, it's a bit scary putting someone who's larger than a size eight on the cover. Like we don't know how that's going to go. I remember that being a thing and I've even heard, you know, very well-known fashion editors saying that decision comes and then the next, you know, in the next month anyway, then they revert back to the, to the business as usual approach. Absolutely. And look, I know there was so much support last year. It was the, they had the first ever plus size catwalk at Australian Fashion Week that I was privileged to uh, have the opportunity to go to. Oh, oh you're an A-lister now. That's no, awesome. I do. You're an E-lister, definitely. But <laughs> it was a very special moment to be able to witness. But then this year, all of that diversity rolled back which was really sad to see. And then, of course, at the same time in New York, we have the Met Gala celebrating the life and work of Karl Lagerfeld, who, yes, visionary, but so interesting as a Met Gala theme that he was a terribly fatphobic designer. Um, and Which I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I really knew that. Like I just I know there's a lot of pressure in the industry to design for that, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, well, they call it Paris thin. Well, that's what we used to call yeah, it in the Paris sort of thing, yeah. 1990s. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one thing to be caught up in that, but if you, if anyone cares to have a Google and look at some of his statements uh, on the record, do we really want to, you know. <laughs> Celebrating <laughs> that. Yeah, in, in this day and age. So that's the high end of town. Then we have the high street brands. So, you know, we're all familiar with the Zara's and the Uniqlo's and the H&M's. Fast fashion, Fast essentially. Fashion, yeah. And look, it's it's a bit hit and miss. What I'd say, I mean, Zara is not inclusive at all. I can't shop at Zara. But then we see with H&M and Uniqlo, what's interesting is they put their larger sizes online only. So don't get me wrong, I love e-commerce, I love online shopping. Yeah. Yeah, we've got very into it during um, the lockdown era, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think, you know, when you're drawing a line in the sand and saying to your in the industry, we call them straight size customers, so straight size and plus size. Okay, yeah, terminology everyone knows. No, um, that's good. I wouldn't have known what to what to talk about, so that's good. Yeah, so saying to straight size customers, of course, come in store, try things on. But then conversely, saying to plus size customers, oh no, it's almost we don't want you in store. We want your money, but you're not really that on brand for us. So you, mm. that's so toxic and, and really not okay. 
Well, also, like, they're also once again missing out on sales. Oh, <laughs> not everyone shops online. 100%, Amber. And let me tell you, the, the, the greatest movement in this space is the small brands. The right. Like yours, I guess, and, and others. And I look, there are a few that are doing really, really well, and I do follow them on social because it's just, I love watching, you know, as business owners, watch them, watching them thrive. 100%. And I think it might be because they're on the ground, so to speak, and a lot closer mm. to their customers and understanding their customer needs. But with Lookbook, we're essentially a marketplace. So we house about 25 small independent plus size brands. And some of them didn't start out as plus size brands. And a lot of them aren't exclusively plus size. But yeah, right. it's been so interesting in the 18 months that we've been live, seeing some of these brands remove smaller sizes from their ranges just because they're not selling and really lean into making larger plus sizes yeah well that's that's a really good business case that's really the proof that and perhaps explains a lot of a lot of your growth and 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 I guess the reflection of where we're at in society and what consumers really want and need absolutely so I have that glimmer of hope while I think the big end of town's still slow to get the message there's a little bit of chipping away we're getting there Absolutely. Look, social media perhaps has, you know, a good role and a bad role, if you like, good cop, bad cop kind of conversation about transforming the way we can see ourselves reflected because you can choose who you follow. You can kind of, you know, and it starts giving you suggestions, especially things like Instagram that are highly visual. Can anyone sort of find their own sort of people, their voice, their brands in that place and thrive? Are there some good examples where you see that's happening and it's allowing us to, and, these, and this is probably not quite the right word and I am doing air quotes, like normalise what we see as, as the ideal body size or acceptance of who we are? My biggest piece of advice to all of your listeners, Amber, is to, I hate saying curate your feed because that sounds like such a social media thing to say, but go through and cull. Anyone who doesn't, anyone you're following who doesn't resonate with your values or who, you know, when you see their content, you're like, oh, that makes me feel a bit average about myself. Get rid of it. And I can tell you now that has been life-changing for me, just surrounding myself so to speak, on social media with these incredible plus size women whose style and whose ethos on life I really admire. And I can I can give you a list to pop in the show notes, but I think uh, April Helene Horton, who goes by the Bodzilla, and also Amy Abrahams, who goes by Wear the Damn Dress, which I love. They're two of my favourites. And yeah, I, I just, you know, you can't have a bad day when you're looking at their content. Yeah, and I think we're all in control of what we we choose to see in some ways as well. This is quite a gendered question, but I am curious about this. Do you think men face the same issues when it comes to body size and shape or is it universally an issue but it looks and manifests differently? So, you know, I have sons, one of which is a teenage boy. He's quite lean. You know, he would love to be more bulky and more muscly and, you know, it's just genetics really at his age. There's not much he can do and he has heaps of sports. So, you know, is there something that is universal about this or do you feel like women bear bear the brunt of it, if you like? I think increasingly it is universal. I I do believe that throughout probably 
you know, the mid to latter part of the 20th century, you know, and it, it goes alongside things like feminism and, and the role of women and we don't have time to unpack all of this, right? But if we look at the other chat but I am happy curious to touch on some of those ideas and I guess let people think a little bit deeply about what this means for society as a whole yes and I think if we go back to that Naomi Wolf quote and think about it in terms of weight loss body image female obedience well that that was very much of that time it still rings true but as we've reached greater gender equality I think there is increasingly more equal pressure on men and women when it comes to an achieving an idealised body size and body shape. And I think unfortunately for so long, the, the concept of body image has been couched as a female issue. And just the, 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 the part of me that's an absolute nerd for research methodology is sitting here going, well, if people think of it as a female issue, how has the research been skewed? How have the, you know, the people that we've talked to been skewed? And, and how likely have men been to actually speak up or be counted as people who struggle with this as opposed to going, well, that couldn't affect me, it's a women's issue. So, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. And it is good to kind of, I guess, play that out even if we don't have the answers. Absolutely. So so I really do think that once, uh, you know, we're getting better at removing some of those gender-based assumptions and, and I think moving forward that it will be much more equal in terms of the male versus female presentation of, of some of those those concerns if we spoke in a year's time what would be your number one goal to have achieved and why and it doesn't just have to be about business it could be personal so I am working on something quite exciting at the moment are we getting a spoiler alert, a spoiler alert <laughs> which is I am working on designing lookbooks first house line which, as I mentioned before, at the moment we're a marketplace. We sell a range of outstanding brands. But this is the first time we'll be stepping into the design seat and creating some beautiful pieces for our customers. And I guess the the genesis of why we felt the desire to step into that space is because I know I, I'm quite vocal about my opposition to the word flattering, which again could be a whole other podcast past episode. <laughs> I've never really thought deeply about that word, but yeah, flattering. Flattering. Oh dear. Um, but, but so much of plus size fashion is built around this idea that clothing should be flattering, which is often code for making you look smaller, minimizing parts of your body. And so my aim with this initial collection is it's actually just called the power edit. And it's about encouraging plus size women to take up space to wear things that are bold and fun and striking and and really challenging that narrative so that is honestly what I'm just so fixated on at the moment because I think not just the clothes but the the discussion around how and why I'm designing them that way has the potential to be so powerful and empowering for the plus size community and I'm sure it won't be unflattering (laughs) <laughs> has to be the counter to this. Well, uh, yeah, oh, look, a, a subject of another episode, but I mean. <laughs> so many like little tangents we could go down, but I'm just, I'm being a bit playful, but you know, that idea that, you know, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that's important for everyone just to take on board to wear what you feel good in and kind of, that's fine. It's not about, you know, other people's view of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, I think the phrase you're looking for, Amber, is it will be well-constructed well-manufactured and, you know, whatever other adjectives or descriptors people would like to apply to it is is for them. But we don't use that particular word at Lookbook. 
Well, I wish you all the best for that. And of course, as we wrap up our message today, do you have a final takeaway message for us all on the politics of body size? Yes. So something that we haven't got too deeply into, but we we have talked a little bit about sort of the diet industry, the fashion industry, and coming back to that idea that we don't exist in a bubble is saying to people, if something's causing you to feel negatively about your body, um, and we can we can catch it in terms like fat phobia or internalized fat phobia, but again, that's just a bit of jargon. But if something's causing you to feel bad, I always think it's so valuable to ask yourself who profits off you feeling that yes. way. Yeah, because at the end of the day, someone's pulling the strings. Someone, you know, and I. I Someone's trying to make some money off this. And I just personally in my own journey have found that so useful because that makes me really angry, uh, mm. that that thought process of, oh, my gosh, I feel like someone's trying to pull the wool over my eyes. This is not in my best interest. And I think it's a really valuable tool for reframing. So that's my challenge to your listeners to think about who profits off this feeling. Absolutely. I have absolutely enjoyed our conversation today. And of course, it was a big topic and I really appreciate Katrina, you taking it on. If you do want to connect further with Katrina and her brand, there will be some details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.